A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Let me tell you something, Murph, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Three times over the weekend, we got ourselves all riled up for historic Irish sporting success. Three times the bubble was burst. First, Belgium slapped us with a bit of modern football realism. Within a couple of hours, the Springboks came from behind to deny the rugby team a first ever series victory in South Africa. And last night, Dustin Johnson brushed off the controversy and drama surrounding his belated one stroke penalty to see off Shane Lowry, who'd taken a four shot lead into the final round of the US Open. Next time, when you see me, you saw me heading off the board, Omer. Don't let me leave like that. Don't let me get my hopes up about any uh, Irish sporting events. I don't know. It wasn't that bad a weekend, you know. I'm just, I'm just looking at the Irish Times sports supplement here. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. There's bad news on pages one, two, three, <laughs> four. Some neutral stuff on four. I think. I think they're just four, previews yeah, of sweetening. We, nothing uh, major so there. It's, it's uh, five doesn't have anything of major interest. But what's this? Pages six and seven. <laughs> Page six. Uh, Galway through to a Leinster. Senior hurling final, mm-hmm. and page seven, Galway won twelve, Mayo twelve points. So all I'm saying is, on that sure there are a lot of people out there feeling pretty bad <laughs> this morning, but there are some of us, maybe one county's worth, that are you know I would call these salad days. Quite frankly, well that's all right. I'm happy. Uh, if I'm only happy every weekend were like this, on you were in Castlebar, Michael Park. I was indeed. I was indeed. Owen. You're still buzzing. I can see. <sighs> You know, it's really, it's really strange because um, I went down to Pierce Stadium last year mm-hmm. and uh, I was actually, I was in Tume on Saturday, Saturday night and the game was in Galway on Sunday. So I was kind of walking around Tume, meeting a few people, saying, you know, I've, I think we've got a really good chance tomorrow. Hope. Know? Yeah. And every, literally, I didn't meet one person who said, you know, I agree with you. Every single person that I met, this is last year now, said... No, there's no chance. Uh, I was so I went. I went down this year. Then I mean, and I mean, if so, if they had won last year, yes, it would have been a shock, definitely. But I would have been able to construct an argument that right. Well, Mayo had new management, and maybe there's a little bit of trouble behind the scenes, and Galway are going well, and we've got most of our best players, and there are no absentees that you'd be really crying out for. 
you know, it, it, there, was, there, was, there was, you could construct an argument. There was no way that I could construct an argument. With 15 minutes to go in the game, I was like, this has been really good from Galway. This, you know, we, we can't ask for a whole lot more than this. And then we go win the game. Like, it was really an extraordinary performance. Um, it has to be, it has to be, I'll stop talking about Galway pretty soon, don't worry. Paul. No, I but, want to hear about it because they're going to be talking to one of their star players on the show. Yeah, but um, yeah, we're talking to Paul Conroy, who, by the way, deserves this more than anyone else because he's been uh, a brilliant footballer for Galway for years. And uh, he joined the panel as an 18-year-old won a con title in his first year and thought, well, this is probably how it's going to be from now on. That's not how it's been. There might so, be the odd down year, but we're sure yeah. to win at least one every couple of seasons. Yeah, um, but he was brilliant on Saturday, absolutely brilliant, as he has been for many years for Galway. But yep. um, you can't talk about Galway without talking about Mayo, unfortunately, because I, I think that Galway played about as close to... Well, I mean, you know, Shane Welch and Damien Comer are two best forwards and maybe there's room for improvement there. But we had five debutants and they all played brilliantly, not just held their own, played brilliantly. Um... But the malfunction that happened uh, with Mayo, uh, it's hard to believe. It really is very, very hard to believe because uh, you have a guy like Aidan O'Shea who has bestrode the Connacht Championship, has laid waste to the Connacht Championship for the last couple of years. There's, it's not just Gola that haven't been able to handle it. I mean, Sligo in the Connacht final last year, I mean, it was you know borderline embarrassing what he did to Sligo last year. Just no answer to him whatsoever. And, you know, maybe in August and September he's had disappointing days in Crow Park. But in Connacht he's just been unstoppable. And he was completely anonymous in the game. Uh, multiple times. I was there with my three brothers and my dad. So five Murphy men lined up one after another. And numerous occasions we turned to each other. Where is Ed Noche? Where is he? And he's 50 or 60 yards away from the ball. And in a situation like this, it kind of doesn't matter where you're playing Ed Noche. With... Ten minutes to go, Mayo are three points down in Castlebar. You just expect Aidan O'Shea to be on the ball all the time. And it just he it just didn't happen for him. He just didn't manage to make an impact in the in the game at all. Um at one stage Killian O'Connor picked up the ball in the left corner back position and kicked the ball straight across the goal to Aidan O'Shea, who was in the right corner back position. And we were looking at it just going, What is go this is bizarre. Those two players should be passing the ball to each other inside their own 21 yard. That has happened to him sometimes in big games. I remember the All Ireland they lost to yeah. Dublin in. Towards the end, you're watching going, "Why is Aidan O'Shea back in his own 40?" And I, I don't, I don't think either of us are having to go particularly at the player here. Albeit, he, maybe he, he has to recognise that this isn't doing the team any good. But presumably, it's part of a team. It's just a failure mm. of the team to get him involved in areas where... Because the debate is always, should he be midfield or full forward? Yeah. Which is a fair debate to have. He's certain, or half forward. He certainly shouldn't be <laughs> past the ball around his full back line. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it was, it was an extraordinary day. A lot of male people getting on to me about uh, our celebrations on the pitch. Oh, yeah, that's wild. <laughs> Uh, and it was, it was crazy. I mean, within 30 seconds of the final whistle, there was, uh, like, every, basically every goalie supporter in the ground, which is about maybe 400 or 500 people maybe, uh, had goalie players on their shoulders, you know, which is kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great picture of Shane Walsh on the shoulders of the Pointing at Damien Comer, who's on someone today. else's shoulder uh, about, you know, 20 yards away. And maybe... You know, the, a guy came up to me actually at the end of the at the end of the game, uh, suggesting that uh, this was indicative. If he, what he, he came up to me and he said, uh, 
I just want to channel my inner Cristiano Ronaldo here, but this is indicative. I'm pointing at the at the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> this is indicative of a small team mentality, you know. My uh, response to him is not broadcastable, Owen, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean it's. I mean it is true. Uh, I suppose if if we're being, you know, critical here, uh, maybe that's not what you should be doing after you win a. And Kevin Walsh said that they were going to be heading out for a few pints as well. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, they stopped into Malarkey's of Milton. Oh, really? Which is a, a, an age-old tradition. So Milton's the first town, once you cross the border, uh, down the N17, first town in Galway. And uh, this has been a tradition going back to, I would say, the 1950s and 1960s, <laughs> that you would stop off in Milton. And uh, so I, I actually had to get back to Dublin straight away on Saturday night. So uh, I rang uh, Dad yesterday, and he was like, the team stopped. And this was a big. This is a big deal for Milton now that the team stopped and uh, had a pint in uh, Malarkey's place. Absolutely jammed out the door with. So the supporters kind of heard that the team were stopping there. So loads of supporters stopped <laughs> in Milton as well. So it was this amazing kind of carnival atmosphere in this usually quite sleepy village <laughs> on a Saturday night, which is, and it was just it's uh, it's uh, one of those wins, one of these come from nowhere wins that you know we all know as sports fans. They're the best. Like, yeah, they're, let know, the fans enjoy it. Let the players enjoy it. What's the point of it they, if you're not going to enjoy it? What is the Okay, point? they might get caught by the Rossies, and if that happens... That, if that happens, well then, Roscommon are in Division 1. It's kind of, you know, it's still kind of to be expected. It's not like, you know, you're playing, you know, Leitrim, a Division 4 team in the county final, you lose, and it's a complete downer. I mean, they've had to take a lot of grief. Uh, 52 players didn't bother joining the panel, turned down an invitation from one of Galway's greatest ever players to come in and join the panel. I mean, these guys stuck with it when a lot of guys didn't. So, I mean, if you're saying to those guys that you immediately have to <laughs> jog off the field and tell the watching media that we've nothing won yet, I mean, come on. Dustin Johnson was approaching the green in the 12th hole uh, r- uh, when a rules official from the United States Golf Association brought him some pretty bad news. So they'd had a look at the footage from an incident on the 5th hole when he... Addressed, well, he hadn't actually technically even addressed the ball. He was taking his practice swings, practice putting swings, when the ball moved a fraction of a fraction, I would describe it as. It really, it really didn't move very much, but enough for there to be consternation behind the scenes at the at, uh, Oakmont there. Uh, so anyway, he was told at this stage, yeah, listen, I know you explained this at the time to a rules official who's there for precisely these kinds of incidents. And I know he accepted that invitation at the time, at that explanation, I should say, but no, we've been looking at this. We've spent the last hour and a half looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. And we think you actually have a case to answer. You may have touched the ball, which would incur a one-shot penalty. But to be honest, we still don't know. So we'll have another look at it and we'll chat to you after the round. You just continue on as you were and we'll decide what your score is once things are wrapped up. That's how ludicrous the situation was. But he managed to hold his nerve throughout that and played so well in the last few holes, particularly with an incredible uh, approach shot to 18th to ensure that it was all a moot point anyway. Albeit, the analyst in Sky made a big play of suggesting that not only was it unfair and Johnson actually had an impact on Shane Lowry and the other golfers in contention. The idea being there that they wouldn't know exactly what score they had to match or beat. Although, it seemed to me that analysis was a little far-fetched at the time and certainly Lowry wasn't looking for excuses afterwards. It actually didn't affect me much at all. I mean, I just kind of, you know, uh, really feel like I let it go today. Um, Very disappointed at the minute. You know, the more even the more I think about it, the more upset I'm getting. Um, it's, you know, one of those. It's going to be hard to take. It's going to be a tough few days. Uh, but, you know, I led by four shots in this tournament going into the final round. 
I was tied for the lead with five holes to play. Um, I'm definitely good enough to win one of these. Uh, so I'll get back in the horse in a couple of weeks and uh, back to Firestone in a few weeks and looking forward to defending there. And then obviously I've got the Open and the PGA this in the next few weeks or a couple of months as well. So, um, you know, exciting summer ahead. I've obviously got good form and... Um, you know, looking forward to the next few weeks, but yeah, obviously this one's going to be quite hard to take. I can see it in your eyes. I thank you for your time, but one quick question. You say it's got a couple of weeks off, just step away from the game now and kind of evaluate what happened today, or are you just going to go and completely forget about it as best you can? I wish I could. I've got a, co- a corporate day in Dublin tomorrow, so I'm playing golf again tomorrow, which is, uh, you know, that's going to be great fun, but um, <laughs> people talking to me about how, how I let the lead slip. But anyways, um, yeah, listen, after that, I'm going to take a couple of days just to assess what happened. Like At the end of the day, if you were to give me second at the start of the week, you'd probably take it. Obviously, I'm standing here now in that position, and I'm not... I'm not happy, um, but yeah, there's lots of positives to take from this week. It's you know the the, the toughest test of golf. Um, you know this is a true test of golf, and I was right up there for you know 67 holes. Good stuff from Shane Lowry there. Just about holding it together. It must be said he was described how upset he was, and clearly the even the guy interviewing him was pretty empathetic and noticed that he was almost visibly upset. Um, that corporate golf day. I, I just hope, I mean, that's that's probably been played at this stage. I don't know what time it's at. Maybe not, maybe it might be a little bit. Who knows, but by the time we record this, I just hope not too many people have bugged Shane Lowry on that. Well, I think he, he's, he's made his feelings quite clear on the whole area of discussing in depth what may or may not have gone wrong for him. So I hope uh, that our friends in corporate Ireland uh, were listening. <laughs> Malachi Clerken is here to talk about all of this. Malachi, how are things? Hey, Owen. You'd be probably a little bit better, I'm sure, as we all would if we had uh, Shane Lowry as our latest Irish major winner now. But uh, we'll, we'll get back to Lowry. I think we have to start with the shenanigans around yeah. the penalty for Dustin Johnson. So it's funny because the first time major victory for a man with a controversial history and previous dramatic near misses would usually be the stuff of dreams for sports fans. It's really exciting. But I I don't know, it all seems to be just a little bit underwhelming based on... It's terrible really, isn't it? uh, Now, they really just took the sting out Mm. of it. Uh, If if you can do that, I I mean, I've always always loved golf for... uh, a Sunday night major um, where, and especially the US Open actually, where everybody is like within a fingernail of disaster all the way through. And it's whoever can, you know, keep their puke in their mouth wins. That's that's what the the US Open is. That that if, all you got to do is get through it, survive to the end of it. And it's, it's it is... Unique in that, and golf would be awful if that was what it was every week, but one week a year, I very much enjoy that. Because there's so much drama in every shot. Like, people wonder why, why the Ryder Cup is, is, is a big deal, why it, is always, why it became a big deal. It was because first thing Friday morning, 7 a.m., the first shot matters. Because, you know, if you're Friday morning in any golf tournament... If you have a bogey in the first hole, ah, damn it, we can get it back. You know, everything is recoverable. Whereas everything matters from the beginning of a Ryder Cup. And the same on a, on a US Open Sunday. Every shot, you know, it's not like Augusta where, uh, where if you throw it into the pond on 12, you can go for eagle on 13 and, and, you know, win it back. Every shot leaks away and leaks away. And it's whoever stops 
the leaking wins. And there's an inherent drama in that. And yet, they managed to take all the drama out of it last night. They managed to take the drama out of, as you say, this sort of, this story of this guy who has thrown a, found new and impressive ways to throw away majors over the last five years. By creating an air of unreality, which and that's what it was for the for the last two hours of the broadcast. Now, the broadcast the, the broadcast didn't help matters because you know you're certainly in Britain and Ireland, your Monty and your Butch Harmon and these guys just you know shaking their fist at the sky, going, "We don't know what's going on," which you know. God love them. I thought journalism was about going and finding out what was going on and coming back and telling the people sitting at home instead of sitting raging at the world because they don't know. That really started to annoy me. But I, but the whole thing created an air of unreality where you didn't know, you didn't know who was placed where, you didn't know what effect all of this was having on the players. Everybody at home and everybody on the TV was deciding that this was having a huge effect on the players. Uh, whereas if it was affecting Dustin Johnson at all, he bloody won the... the, the it, as he was walking off the 18th, he had won the thing. It's a great point. Shots. And the way you described the TV commentary is interesting because the, the way they were making it, it was almost as though, oh, well, this whole t- tournament, they almost made it feel like an irrelevance. I was watching Shane Lowry shots and I was finding myself not even... Uh, engaging engage, I, I was, absolutely you know which is really That's weird because exactly right. I, I assumed yeah. I assumed I'd be on tender hooks the whole time uh, and, and even they were offering Lowry the out themselves yes. they're like oh well I mean the effect that this must have on poor Shane Lowry not knowing yeah. if he needs how many birdies or pars he might need when Shane Lowry himself as we heard earlier said oh, it was nothing didn't have an effect on me at all I just yeah. threw it away uh, and, and Johnson was the one guy who wasn't complaining wasn't asking questions obviously decided in his own head I'll deal with that yeah. but as long as I keep as, I, as long as I keep playing well, I could just win this tournament anyway. Yeah, if yeah. I finish on five under par here, nobody's going to get close to me. They could take ten shots off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. But I mean, the, the amount of times we've heard from golfers saying, oh, I took a look at the leaderboard going down the 18th, so I knew what I, what to, what I had to yeah. do. You know, like, so, like loads of golfers take that approach on the Sunday of a major. Mm. I don't want to know what anyone else is doing. I can only control my own game. So this idea that all of a sudden, the, the, the fact that Shane Lowry doesn't know what score Dustin Johnson is going to end up on. I mean... Yeah, of course he doesn't. You know, like that's obvious. You know, but, like, but even beyond that, uh, Shane lost the U.S. Open before the controversy happened. It was gone. Like by the time he was standing on the twelfth, uh, he had lost four shots, and and his head was gone. His his mind was scrambled. Um, the idea that uh, if somebody had said to him, "Okay, Dustin is actually on." three under now, not four under. The idea that that sort of clarity would have changed the round of golf that Shane was having uh, just doesn't bear any reality. He was having a terrible day. He wasn't... He started off reasonably well, but he got a few bad breaks. He got no return out of a couple of decent shots. Definitely on the, the, the par five, the fourth, he had a couple of good shots and just got no love for them. Um... His day was kind of going from then. But the idea that he was going to come home in 30 or 33 or 34 or whatever it was, uh, if he had known exactly what it was that he needed to hit, it just doesn't wash, I don't think. If you're trying to win your first major, is a place on top of the leaderboard with four shots to spare a bad place to be <laughs> going into the final round? It just seems like it's happened to so many people. Oh, look. They struggle. It's, it, 
where where is the where is the life experience that you can compare it to? Where's your frame of reference? I remember when Graham McDowell won his uh, at Pebble Beach. Um, Dustin Johnson went into that four shots clear on the Sunday, um, and I remember he. Uh, that was one of those US Opens that was all over the place as well. There was a bit of weather. I think Graham had something ridiculous like 29 hours between his final shot of the third round and his first shot of the of the final round. Um, and if I remember rightly, he either missed a putt for birdie or missed a putt for par with his final shot in the, in the third round. I may be getting that wrong, but there was some detail where... At the end of it, oh, oh, that was it. He led going into the third round, but walked out of the third round having gone four shots behind Dustin Johnson. And as they walked off the 18th, his caddy said to him, uh, he's got to sit on a four-shot lead for the next 30 hours. (laughs) You've had your bad round. Mm -hmm. I know which I'd rather be. Now, that sounds great in retrospect. (laughs) Graham went and won the bloody tournament and blah, blah, blah. But there's got to be something to it, you know. You've got a lot of time to fill. Like, I heard Shane on the radio this morning talking about, you know, he went back to the course yesterday morning, went, got to seven under, and then had to kill time for the day. Went back, tried to sleep, couldn't sleep, watched a bit of hurling, didn't probably didn't really watch very much of it, watched it through glassy eyes. It's a lot of time to do nothing. It's a lot of time not to think. And it's... It just got to him. It just he 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 got out. I thought he played reasonable, as I say, through the first four or five holes. But there was a two-shot swing where Johnson, I think Johnson birdied maybe three or two. Shane birdied or bogeyed three or four, and it went from seven uh, three to uh, six four. And all of a sudden, there's nothing in that. Then all of a sudden, that's. That that can go in the space of ten minutes, and what be, what was a chasm becomes nothing. And once it's nothing, you gotta chase it. And once you're chasing it, it just didn't didn't work for him, you know. Yeah, and your description of the US the US Open there, the last, the back nine of the US Open, the final day of the US Open, hanging on by your fingernail, or you know, like being a fingernail away from disaster. Mm. It's only when. I think you're as emotionally involved as I'm sure we all were watching Shane mm. and hoping that he would win, that you realise that there's no let-up. There was yeah. At no stage could Shane say, right, drive, chip, two putts, par, no problem. Yeah. The, you know, I can, I, can do, I can play this hole in my sleep. Every single hole appeared, appeared to him to just... Nothing came easy to him. I, there was a, a really telling moment in the coverage where he said to his caddy, everything's happening too quick. I was just about to say that. Yeah, yeah. and whether he was talking about his, his, a quickness coming into his swing or whether it was actually, mm-hmm. whether he was talking about the day mm-hmm. itself, yeah. I thought that was a really telling moment. That was it. Yeah, no, I was just about to say that, 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 that he just, you, you could hear him kind of going, oh, can we start again? Can I can Take I do, a break for twenty minutes? Can and I, just can, relax here. You know? Can I can I just apple Z the last two hours here <laughs> and, and and just undo and 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 we'll go again. Everybody back to their corners and and we we'll give this another shot. Um, it just yeah and and look that's sport and that's golf uh, beyond all and every every shot counts and they can't double in a, in a U.S. Open Sunday. All the. Uh other golfers were, you know, Spieth, McElroy, all these guys were tweeting their disgust mm. with the USGA for their ruling. Although, well, actually, not so much for the ruling. I think the issue that everybody had was, okay, it's a penalty or it's not a penalty. 
But he, you've, the conversation has been had with the rules official mm-hmm. on that green, on the fifth green. I think I think the problem everyone seemed to have was that they, they obviously that rules official goes away and everybody else looks at it and they come back at the 12th green yeah. and tell Johnson he has a problem. It, should the onus be on, on the rule makers to decide there and then? Or if not to decide there and then, maybe tell him... I mean, there's an argument you tell him after the event that's not really very fair either. Or actually, to just go back on that thing, um, you know, there's a, there's a stroke. Depicted. Look, there are a number of things here. There's one, and I'm going to get this out of the way very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love golf. Mm-hmm. I've played golf since I was nine years old. I play it until I can't pick up a club. The rules of golf are the stupidest, <laughs> most useless thing in sport. And... They come from a place, and and they are what gives golf its bad name. I was tweeting this last night, that when I try to defend golf to normal people, (laughs) it's shit like this that makes their eyes glaze over. (laughs) Where, what crime did, let's say he he was worth penalising the shot there. What what advantage did he gain? The, the, let's say, for argument's sake, and, and they decided this, that the toe of his putter moved that ball a dimple. Who lost and who won there? Who, what, where, was the, where was the advantage? It was the, the, like the, the most malicious interpretation you can make on that was that he inadvertently moved the ball a dimple. Now, this is in the context of Ten seconds earlier, he had picked up the bloody ball behind a marker, put it back down, cleaned it first, put it back down. So that dimple doesn't matter. You know, it, like, in a, it, it is a sport where you're allowed to go, mark the ball, pick it up, wash it, put it back down in an advantageous position. A, f- a more advantageous position because there, you can put a line on the ball to line up your ball for the yeah. for the hole. Yeah, so yeah. you're gaining an advantage by moving the ball already. And yet this bit that didn't gain an advantage and was completely inadvertent costs <laughs> you a shot. Yeah. yeah you're- I hate golf. <laughs> I love golf and I hate golf. But it's, it is things like this that, that drive me, bar me about it. Um, but... Be that as it may, assume like what what it looked like to me was, I think you've got to make a a ruling. You got to go with the there's a rules official walking around with each player. Yeah, the ruling was made clearly on the on the green. It was made in full view and with the microphones. You could hear him bring the ref over, say, "Look, I didn't touch it. I didn't address it." Uh, the rule is if you put your putter down behind the ball, you you're thought stage. to have addressed it. Therefore, if the ball, which is another idiotic rule anyway, <laughs> but uh, it, the rules official said, OK, you didn't address it. Play the ball as it lies. You're fine. To me, that should have been the end of it. That's, you know, you have a ruling official walking around with each each player because otherwise, and I think this is the interesting side of it. And I wonder, will there be much follow up to this? Effectively, what has happened now is that the ruling official walked around with, with the group. He accepted Johnson's explanation for, for what happened, told him to play on. If that's not the end of it, then what is happening is that the USGA are deciding that he lied. And now that's a pretty serious thing in golf. It's, you know, it, it's, it's part of where they get, it's part of where the sport gets its holier-than-thou um, 
we are the only pure sport in the world when all they are is a bloody sport. But this idea of... And, and I haven't seen a whole pile of comment on this. Oh, they I, have basically decided yeah. that um, they don't accept his explanation for why the ball moved. Uh, and so they charged them a shot afterwards. Now, I think like that's that's a pretty substantial thing to be saying. Or they could argue that they, in 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 this case, they accept that he doesn't believe that he touched the ball or made it move in any way, but that maybe he did without realizing it. His practice putting his practice stroke was pretty mm. close to the ball, and maybe a part of the putter just nudged ever so slightly off the ball. You would, I guess you would think a golfer would know if that had happened. Though. Yeah, well, I would imagine so, yeah. 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 And, they're, and, they're pretty good at knowing uh, what's happening between club and ball there at exactly, most times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And look, okay, even allowing for that and allowing for the rank nuttiness of golf rules, um, the idea that you are going to say to a golfer, okay, this thing that happened seven holes ago, we're going to adjudicate on it seven holes from now but in the meantime play away is idiotic there's no like there's no ifs ands or, or buts about that like what I found what I found really funny was uh, the fact that um, uh, they were saying on the, on the Sky commentary that uh, just by pure pox or maybe not by pure pox but the point at which they stopped Johnson to tell him was beside the TV compound he was literally 20 yards from a TV screen. A bank of screens that he could have watched the footage over. So it could have been done in five yeah. minutes. If they wanted if they wanted his say-so to charge him a shot, which is essentially what they wanted to do, they could, he could have walked in. Or as uh, I think Graham McDowell was saying online, um, has nobody got an iPad that they can walk out to this yeah. guy with the footage on? Say, did you touch it or didn't you? Uh, it, the idea that in the middle of the last round of a major, he's got to wait to the end. Uh, it's crazy. There's well, no getting away from was it. Was it McElroy or was it Speed? One of the heavy hitters McElroy. said that. Uh, yeah, but one of them said that he wouldn't. Yeah, sorry, uh, Roy McElroy. If it was me, I wouldn't hit another shot until this farce is rectified. Yeah. Which was another option possibly open to Dustin Johnson. But you're putting an extra layer of pressure there on yeah, somebody who's are. trying yeah, to. Look, yeah, and, and is now the time to make a stand against the idiotic rules of golf? Thinks Dustin Johnson, maybe not. Well, also, you're talking two different personalities there. Yeah. Um, had this happened to it's interesting actually, and I was looking at that last night. Had this happened to Rory in the middle of his round, you could see it ruining Rory's round. Um, What's different about Dustin Johnson for the non-golf? Dustin Johnson is. How do we put this very uh, kindly? There isn't a whole pile going on upstairs with Dustin Johnson, right? Um, famously, like he would would say it himself. You know, he he is uh, weirdly for golf. He is an actual jock. You know, he is an athlete um, who isn't, wouldn't be the sharpest tool in the box mm. and says it himself and says that that is why, you know, he has come back from, from you know, everybody kind of goes, oh, poor Dustin Johnson, like he missed that putt to, to win or to take the, to win the US Open last year and then to take it into a playoff. You know, how do you come back from that? So he just comes back from it. He's over it the next day kind of thing. He's not the, he's not the type to uh, obsess about every little detail. He's not... He, he, I think there's definitely... Like there, I, as with everyone in American sport, there's one, there's one a stat for everything. He's, he's always very high up in the bounce-back stats, you know, that, that comes back from a bogey because he can just, you know, 
wipe it from from the memory bank and go on and and, and keep plowing on. Um, whereas R- Rory, you could totally see that ruining Rory's round. You and a lot totally of golfers, see, actually, a lot yeah. of golfers, yeah. yeah. But you could see the shoulders slumping and <laughs> raging at the injustice of the world, and like like. Rory gets cranky when a putt doesn't break the way it's supposed to, you know, something like this. I would be interested. I also thought it was quite easy for him to be tweeting from his couch saying I would I would stop the US Open uh, and not take another shot till this is sorted out. Um, I'd be interested to see how that would work out in real time, you know, especially had he never won a major, especially if he's on a back the back nine of a major where he's actually playing pretty well. You know, he's like Dustin Johnson drove the ball amazingly last night. I actually kind of think that it, that a Rory McIlroy in that groove where he's driving the ball that well, where he has that kind of like Rory. Rory thinks a lot of himself when he's really playing well. You can see the way he puffs up and you can see the way he strides <laughs> out. You One shot penalty. Give me two shot penalty. Yeah, Who cares? Yeah. Three shots. You, you Go nuts. You and whose army? Now, yeah, yeah. As, as as George W. Bush would have said. Now watch this drive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll leave it on that note, Malik Durkin. Thank you so much. Cheers, lads. What are you saying? You just a phony man. This is just for I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. Supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My heart is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother. I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you're a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. You can't teach that. If this is the first... Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast you're listening to this week. Well, you're lagging behind. Have a look at the feed there. Two Euros pods already out. On Sunday, we came in to do a little bit of post-match reaction to Ireland and Belgium. I managed to get over to that game in Bordeaux. Not sure I picked the best one. M- managed to get to one of the Euro... Well, I suppose it was no great Euro 2012 game anyway. No. So I don't know about the worst one. Maybe was the least... You, you, might, you may have been at the least worst one. I was at Croatia. At least we had a chance at Ledger goal in that yeah. one. There was no real moment. This and there was hope. Around. I mean, there was the pre-match... I mean the, I've the told answer. you about hope. Sorry, yeah, we sorry. Very, that's, that's our problem. Don't go all Andy Dufresne on this. I'm talking about yeah. the earlier part of the. Earlier I didn't game. even have hope in Castlebar. That's what made it so good. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then uh, today, yeah, we did a more considered, I guess, podcast reflection with Richie Sadler in studio. Gabriele Mercati gave a great insight into the Italian mindset coming into this one. But we're talking a lot to Richie about the night. He was particularly critical of Shane Long. Felt that he needed to show a little bit more street smarts, maybe, in how he approached the rugged Italian defending, give them a little bit back and just be a little bit less naive, which was a theme running through quite a lot of our play, both in attack and defence. Roy Keane was asked about this since then, since we had a chance, so I'm just having a look at this, Malone reports, and he says that, yeah, he actually uses the word, he says, Roy Keane says the Irish players have to be streetwise like the Italians when they face Antonio Conte's men, uh, suggesting that sometimes winning football Matches require sacrifice by individual players. Foul, you mean? The Corkman replied with a hint of amusement to a politely phrased question about the Irish players. Perhaps he needs to be more willing to stop play than they were in Bordeaux. He says, yes, my advice would be, yeah, take them out. <laughs> we saw Italy against, this would have been the Clark one in particular, we, we, a lot of us thought of, and even uh, Clark and Hazard late in the game for the third goal and McCarthy on, wasn't this the Brown F for the first goal? There were opportunities there. Anyway, we saw Italy against Belgium, says Keane. The player jumped all over somebody's back when Belgium were breaking, and then they kicked the ball out of play. That's where you go back to the Italians. You have to be streetwise in this game. We're not here to make friends. The fans will do that from a player's point of view. If you smell danger and you think we're in trouble here, 
then yeah, you do whatever you can to get the right result. If that's a foul, then you foul them. It's not a crime. You might get a yellow card. You might even get a red, but your team might win. Sacrifices. You have to make sacrifices for your team. Does that answer your question? Ask a 44-year-old with a smile. What do you think I would do? So Senza Keane was in pretty good form again, but uh, as we suspected during the, the podcast earlier, he wouldn't have been massively happy watching Summer Butland out on out in the field. So interesting that he addressed that. Yeah, I think as well that like uh, the game's come so thick and fast in this that, right, we all felt pretty terrible on Saturday and maybe you wallow in it yesterday. But by the time today comes, you actually have to update and say, we're a win away from a quarterfinal. And we probably thought, you got to, there's, there's every chance you're going to have to win a game in this group anyway. So here we are. You know, the tournament isn't over. Italy are going to have a massive amount of changes in their team. Like, there, it, it may be hard for some people, given how badly we played on Saturday and how badly we were outclassed, but there's still a chance. So, I mean, I think, you know, Aquino being upbeat, I think that's kind of his job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Not that we know a whole lot of what of what Kino's job is and what he thinks his job is, particularly when it comes to his media... <laughs> Uh, his media appearances but um, when it comes to this I think yes upbeat's the way to go I was drowning my sorrows post-match in Bordeaux Simon and the weather had picked up by that stage it was the first bit of sunshine that a lot of the Irish fans had had in their entire time in France I got the impression then I started getting updates from the rugby and all started to become right with the world they're saying well at least we have that we're, we're, we're hammering South Africa yeah. suddenly I think I lost my internet connection certainly the WhatsApp messages stopped and I couldn't get on Twitter and I uh, just assumed that we had finished out the task which we hadn't exactly managed to do what happened? Six, yeah 16 points up twice in the game at half time and with around 20 to go and yet when Jamie Heaslip scored that try in the corner for Ireland there was just a feeling about South Africa about the stadium just this different energy to the thing that you didn't even feel it would be necessarily that close at the end. I don't think Ireland mounted another attack. Oh, they did one final attack where there was crossing Robbie Henshaw and Stuart Oling. And that was really it then for Ireland. From that point on, it was just giant South Africans running at Ireland who were looking more and more tired. But before the game, I just felt with the squad was essentially rotated. Um, the likes of Craig Gilroy wouldn't have started necessarily a big game. You know, Mike Ross was rested. Uh, Sean Crona wasn't on the bench. So before the game, it's at altitude. The South Africans are angry. They're playing for their lives, for their careers, uh, to not be embarrassed. And it felt a little bit like a shot to nothing. If Ireland lost it by six, seven, eight, ten points, then it wouldn't be a huge deal, and you'd have shot in the third test. But the way it then played out with that big lead, the way South Africa suddenly, it dawned on them, hang on, if we hang on to the ball, if we stop spilling it in the tackles we can kill these guys. And there was such a momentum at the end of the game, it almost played out as badly as it possibly could have done for Ireland, especially when you throw in the injury to Robbie Henshaw, the physical exertion that would have gone into it. Um, it looks bad for the third test when I kind of felt the second test would be would be a shot to nothing now. It's it's damaged us long-term. Psychologically, as much as anything else. Exactly. As much as the yeah. injuries in the way yeah. that goes. Well, Jerry Thornley is in Port Elizabeth where the third test takes place next weekend. Jerry, was there one reason, do you think, why they couldn't close it out in Johannesburg? I'll go one reason. Um, probably not one. There never is one. You'd have to say the Springboks um, found their mojo, started running harder and straighter, held on to the ball, stopped dropping it. And, of course, with the introduction of Room Cumbrick on one wing for the fairly hapless Zimbabwe and shifting J.P. Peterson across the other wing, they made series of inroads along the flanks to use the full width of the pitch. So you have to give them some credit for finding their game. Um, there's no doubt, though, that if you... Look at that match again. It's like there's a switch around the hour mark after Ireland um, scored that mauling try that in the last 20 minutes. Um, they start falling off tackles. Their line speed 
isn't the same. It's just like the, the legs have gone. There's an, certainly an element of fatigue, whether altitude is a factor in that or not, uh, is, is, is something we, can't, we can only estimate from the sidelines. Um, some players would say it wasn't a factor at all. Um, the management thought it was. It certainly experienced observers like Donald Lennon thought it was. Um, it looked like it was at the time. You'd have to say, though, that uh, ultimately it was the South African bench um, and more proactive use of their bench which swayed the game uh, compared to Ireland's, which basically only saw them replenish their tight five until the game was effectively up. I don't see how um, altitude couldn't have been at least partially a factor, Jerry. I, I ran a 10K. I ran a 10K run in, in Ethiopia once in Addis Ababa at altitude. And geez, I don't know how people play professional sport if they're not used to it. So as that said, it's not like all the South Africans play there all the time either. So, uh, But the, the, a lot of the guys they brought off the bench seem to be locals or players who play locally. Well, the, you, the deliberate tactic by Alistair Coates, uh, and he admitted as much afterwards, they wanted to take Ireland to altitude. Ireland had never played the, spot, the Springboks in a test in Ellis Park before they wanted to take them to that because they're a banker to get a win. Um, they generally try and take the All Blacks there. It doesn't always work against the All Blacks' mind. Then again, Ireland aren't the All Blacks. So, yeah, you'd have to think it was a deliberate tactic. And with that in mind, he had four Lions players on the bench, two of whom he introduced at half-time, both of whom scored uh, the first two tries. And they ended the game um, with seven Lions players on the pitch for the last 13 minutes, all of whom know how to play at altitude. And compare and contrast that with, like I said, the, um, the Irish team wilting in the altitude in the last 20 minutes um, and not getting much in the way of replenishment from the bench. Joe Smith said afterwards, you know, it takes time for players to get into it and the players on the pitch had a certain rhythm going and, um, you know, it's a classic coaching dilemma, stick or twist. By the way he said it afterwards, I think privately he must be wondering now himself, should he have introduced the bench a bit sooner uh, by the time that... Um, Say the halfbacks were changed, and Kieran Marmion and Ian Madigan came in, and Tiernan Haller, and it was the last three minutes, and, and the game was effectively up. Ireland did have chances to get back in the game in the last 20 minutes, um, but uh, there was a few players that clearly did seem to wilt. I thought Paddy Jackson, Reese Wilkins, David, and Andrew Trimble, for example, all of whom had been outstanding in the first hour in many, many ways. Um, they were all coupled for missing tackles, as was Conor Murray in one passage. When, when, you, when you see Conor Murray missing a tackle, you really know there's something wrong. He never normally does. He's probably one, as good a, a defender in the nine and covering corner flagging and so forth as any scrum half in the world. And in mitigation of him for that tackle he missed in Allende for the last try, it was his third attempt, it was his third tackle in that sequence of play. And he also tried to get a poach in and was cleared out. So you, you certainly he's forgiven, he can be forgiven that, to be honest. There was such a momentum shift going to that last 10 minutes that once they got back to within four points, 22-26, you felt it was only a matter of time then, such the momentum that they're going to get over the line and win it. it hadn't been, if it hadn't been that missed tackle, it would have been another one. Jerry, I don't think I've ever seen such a momentum shift. I mean, maybe you can give us some idea of what it's like in the stadium because, I mean, rugby can go like this, a bit like hurling maybe, where there's this energy about the game that you can't really describe or understand but it's so obvious and it came across to us on the TV screens what was the stadium like? Yeah it was interesting um, the, both anthems but obviously particularly the South African national anthem were belted out and then when the game started it was chance of ole 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 there was a real kind of carnival atmosphere in the ground very expectant very optimistic very confident as you'd expect from a South African crowd at home playing Little Old Ireland and then uh, they made a bright start and it was very loud and lively and then they started making mistakes or this new tactic or not new tactic, but certainly Ireland are clearly under the influence of Andy Farrell targeting the ball more in the tackle and it forced some turnovers and then their scrum or scrum got into the game and they, they they started to boo Paddy Jackson when he was addressing penalties and then by the end of the half it even stopped booing the, the kicks from Paddy Jackson. They just went 
it, like it just went still, quiet, it stayed stunned shock as Ireland mounted that 19-3 halftime lead. Then it was crescendo booze as the players came off at halftime for the home side. Um, Willie LaRue, interestingly, after eight minutes was booed when he kicked the ball aimlessly downfield uh, into the throat of Andrew Trimble. And, um, and then the second half, the introduction of two home players brought a big cheer. Um, uh, Warren Whiteley and Moon Cumbrink. Cumbrink and Whiteley both had an extraordinary impact, particularly Cumbrink on debut. And that got, once he started getting down the flank and he got his first try, then the crowd were right into the game. And then in the last 20 minutes, it was just, it was like a stampede, a Springbok stampede. As the, as the, they got in their running game, um, got their tries, the crowd just went ballistic. It was a cacophony of noise then. It was exultant by the end, um, like they'd won the World Cup final there again. It was just, the, it, you, you could have closed your eyes and just measured the game by the sound volume and the different sounds coming from the stands. And uh, yeah, was, I don't think I've seen such an extraordinary shift like that either. It was very unusual to see a team of Joe Schmitz concede four tries in 23 minutes or whatever it was. An unanswered salvo of 22 points was it in the last 20 minutes. Less. It was very unusual to see that in the Joe Schmidt team and it was such a momentum shift. But maybe this happens more at Attitude. Maybe this happens more at um, Ellis Park. Certainly the Springboks are always, have always been a momentum team. But once they get into a bit of a rhythm, they can be that power game of theirs can just blow sides away at pretty much any side of the world. and could even cause the All Blacks problems. You know, they've had famous comeback wins over the All Blacks at home as well. And it was almost unstoppable. You know, Like I said, even before the end, you knew they were somehow going to get over the line. It was quite extraordinary to see. We didn't get a chance to discuss Andy Farrell's impact after the first test. And it seems a little strange maybe talking about it given the way the final 15 minutes went in the second test. But there's definitely a change in the way Ireland defend, both technically but also in attitude, would you say, Jerry? Yeah, he talked about that. I interviewed him before the first test and he said, for all the talk about systems and so forth, there's as much a state of mind as anything else. And there was a, there's a huge work rate in defence. Maybe that told as well that the work rate had been so savage in the first match and for the first hour. Um, ultimately, Ireland went down to 14 missed tackles. I would venture there must have been at least nine or ten of those in that last 15, 20 minutes, which shows you how well they had defended for the first hour. Um, their line speed has improved. They're much more aggressive until that last 20, and it's just a, a different system at that stage, whether it's fatigue, altitude, or a little bit of shock and the momentum shift, whatever else. But until then, you could definitely see that there's been more line speed. And like I said earlier, there's clearly... Um, and uh, design a tactic of targeting the ball in the tackle and aim, keeping, their, keeping their eyes fixed on the ball when they make the tackle because they forced quite a few spillages in contact. Um, and it was Henderson, Jackson, so Quinn Rudu, and several different players all doing it. So they're all buying into this system. And I hear nothing but very, very positive vibes in the camp. And I don't think, I think you have to take that last 20 minutes a little bit out of context in terms of what he's brought. I think he's been a very, very positive addition to the squad. I really do. Yeah, I guess just building on that, Jerry, it's also not a bad way to look at this series so far. If you take the, I mean, since you can't fully take those twenty minutes away, but if you even go, to, even regardless of what happens in the last test, there's a lot of positive stuff going on here. We, it turns out, we have a half decent coach for a start, who's pretty good at building game plans to beat supposedly superior opposition. Paddy Jackson again showed that he looks like he's taken a step up, a big step up internationally in the last few weeks. Um, Payne has been amazing at full back. Uh, and so there's, there doesn't be quite a lot going on, although I don't know how much of that gets punctured if we go to Port Elizabeth and lose badly at the weekend because there's still this historic Test Series victory on the on the line there. Yeah, and Ireland don't do last tests very well. We all remember what happened four years ago in Hamilton, third test against the All Blacks. I remember as well, that was a week after... Ireland could very easily have beaten the All Blacks in Christchurch for the first time ever. They played very well that night in Christchurch. were arguably the better team. They were 
level in the last five minutes um, with the All Blacks down to 14 men after Simbini and Israel Dag and put on a big, big scrum in the All Blacks half, about 40 metres out. Many a referee might have given um, Ireland a penalty and the way Johnny Sexton was kicking goals, he would have nailed that from the car park, never mind 40 metres out. He was just unerring that night. And that would have put Ireland three up against 14 men with maybe a player or two left. Instead, he penalised Ireland for uh, wheeling the scrum. Um, you then go downfield, Dan Cardick's drop goal, the All Blacks win by three. And it's almost been airbrushed from history because a week later of what happened in Hamilton, 16-0. And, you know, even back in two test series, it's often in the case Ireland don't see out seasons the last game of the tour very well. And it would be a little co- bit of concern if there was a drubbing here, say, it would be, it would, I would be surprised if that happened. Um, like I said, that was so unusual to see that happen to a Joe Schmidt team. I can't imagine a Joe Schmidt, Andy Farrell, Simon Eastbeep, except for a team um, crumbling over the course of the 80 minutes the way they did in that 20 minutes last week. I just can't see it happening. Um, Robbie Henshaw will be a loss, though. It looks like he's definitely gone, gone home with a knee injury. out the rest of the tour. I think you're right. I think Payne at fullback has been one of the really, really positive stories of this tour. I think they'd be inclined to keep him there and give Olding and Luke Marshall had a very good first test pairing together. It's practically an Ulster back line now. And, and yeah, right, Paddy Jackson's come through. I think Reese Ruddock's performance for the first hour was outstanding. Uh, again, footwork, um, strength in the carry, everything else. You have to say that for his first ever test start against uh, Tendai M. Tawira, the beast, Tyke Furlan went really well. It was his first game in seven weeks. That was a very, very encouraging first day match. Uh, first full-on match for Tyke Furlan. He did really well for his first hour on the pitch. So it's been a good few positives. Um, and like I said, I think they've got a really good coaching ticket now. Um, you just hope that Joe Schmidt stays through his next World Cup. That's the one caveat coming out of this. He clearly still hasn't decided what he's going to do beyond the end of next season. Um, there has been some contact from the Highlanders, but there's regular contact from New Zealand. There's basically an open door there from whenever he wants to go back, whenever Steve Chu comes, to New Zealand's CEO comes within the same vicinity as... Joe Schmidt, he makes contact with him. Um, so, but if he stays in place next World Cup, I think with Farrell, Zeke, be the rest of his t- team there, uh, I think they've got a very good coaching staff and I think this will have been a beneficial tour definitely for, regarding the future. Jerry, as ever in South Africa, the city and the venue seems to play a huge factor. We've seen it in the first two tests. Port Elizabeth now, supposedly a more relaxed coastal city. The players might get, after a couple of days, get over those final 20 minutes um, how much of a factor and, and what way do you see the final one going? Well, they're certainly staying in the most magnificent coastal hotel, really quite something. It is, um, um, it's quite a change from Santon or even Cape Town, but certainly from Santon in Johannesburg. Um, it's a lovely setting. Um, it would almost lull you into a false sense of security, lull you into almost a holiday moment. The last week of a 52-week season for a lot of these players it's the last of 17 tests, a record in one season. There'll be a lot of people very glad to see the back of this rugby season, I have to be honest, in some ways. And, of course, like I said, Ireland tend not to do last tests very well. You'd have, you know, holiday plans have been made and so forth, whereas the Springboks are gathering momentum. They're going to do a third test. I think Henshaw's physicality is a big loss. I think you'll probably see Mike Ross come back in. Um, you'll probably see I don't know, Alton Delan come back into the, the match day squad. Maybe Ian Henderson go back in second row with uh, Jordy Murphy to come back in and start in the back row. Um, so it would be a stronger team, maybe a little bit. I think, you know, like I said, you'll probably see Olding um, and, and Marshall in midfield. It's a, it's a team certainly good enough to put another big performance together again. Um, but I think to clinch a series win would be, um, I don't know where you'd rank in the history of achievements of an Irish rugby team, given all those circumstances I've just outlined. 
it's hard to believe that their best chance with 20 minutes to go last Saturday was probably has probably gone past them now, and it would be one almighty effort just to get up to this game and be competitive over 80 minutes, but to win it and clinch a series win on South African soil after the momentum South Africa got last weekend would be a, a phenomenal achievement. Yeah, doesn't sound you're too com- <laughs> like you're too confident, Jerry. But listen, enjoy the final test regardless. Thanks a million. Cheers, will do. Thanks. Mind you, Simon, nobody was predicting anything for the first test and we won with 14 men. There was an assumption that there would be a backlash in Johannesburg, but it didn't really happen in the way that people expected, not from the start anyway. So maybe there's one last heroic effort in us. Well, strategically, we've taught them in both games and it came down to a physical thing in the second test. And you imagine we're not going to fall away quite the same way, but then it is the third test. It's the very end of our season. It's the middle of their season. That, I think, is going to be the key factor. That's why hopes feel a little bit diminished. All right, the last time Galway won a Connacht title, as Murph mentioned earlier, was 2008. Paul Conroy was a young lad there coming off the bench, kicking a point to help them beat Mayo, a key member of the team these days on Saturday in Castlebar. He kicked a couple of beauties from midfield as Galway shocked their neighbours. It's one of the results of the GA season so far. Paul Conroy, congratulations. Was Saturday as sweet as anything you've had with your county? Uh, yeah, definitely, yeah. I think so. I mean, I suppose the last couple of years we've been We've been on the bad, the, the wrong side of a couple of Mayo defeats. So, um, you know, it was nice, nice to get one over on them. You know, they had some records in the last couple of years going for going for six in a row. But um, no, it was great. No, great. No, great scenes in Castlebar. There were great scenes. Yeah, uh, we've been talking about this. The celebrations looked pretty, uh, pretty wild and pretty exuberant on the field. Anyway, it, was, it looked like sort of, I guess, just a release, uh, a release of emotion that that you, you only get every now and again in your sporting life. Yeah, exactly. Um, I suppose. You know the way we were being written off by you know by the whole country and beforehand really and even locally here like there wasn't many people giving us much of a chance so yeah the, I suppose the relief and the release as you said there was um, it was a great feeling after the game. Yeah, it's it's kind of a it's a well worn GA cliche at this stage that for for people to say oh you know we've been we've been written off in the build up when when that when what that usually means is pundits saying one team is going to win rather than the other but. I mean, it is true to say that you guys really were uh, written off. I mean, even l- last year, I felt going down to Pierce Stadium last year that there was that there was something brewing for Galway, and that if if Galway had beaten Mayo with under new management, that it would have been a shock, but maybe not, you know, a seismic shock. But for whatever reason, there was uh, there seemed to be nothing in the build up that that suggested that 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 this could happen. And then the way that Galway went and won the game as convincingly as they did and finished it out in the last 15 minutes as convincingly as it did it was it was just a, an amazing way to go down and, and beat me up for the first time in six years in Connacht Yeah definitely um, I suppose like you know it's, it's, you, you can see where analysts I suppose are getting their, their, their views from because I suppose in, in the league form based on us in comparison to me oh you know you couldn't really you know you couldn't really give us much of a chance but you know we, we believed in ourselves we worked hard the last couple of weeks we had a long gap between league and championship and uh, you know um I think we were a small bit unlucky last year in the sense that we gave away a soft goal in the second half and that kind of, you know, we didn't really recover from that. But um, it's great to, to put it right this year. Yeah, and when you look at the, the debutants and kind of even where they were playing, a debutant in goal, two debutants in the full back line, uh, you know, and they were either side of a guy who's, you know, had limited enough championship experience as well. And for those guys to play as well as they did, uh, you know, the, under the pressure that they were obviously going to be put under, that must be massively, massively pleasing. Oh, definitely, no, yeah. Um I mean, it's, it's not easy to go up there in, in front of 30,000 people in Casabara on your, your first day out in, in the full back line, but uh, in goals even. But, uh, you know, the lads, in fairness, they did, they did very well, and it's great for 
you know, it's great for the whole the whole setup now. You know, lads will drive it on the next couple of weeks of training, and uh, you know, looking forward to the looking forward to the kind of final. Tom Flynn got your goal, and immediately afterwards, you kicked. Well, you kicked a couple of points late on, but you kicked. A, a, I guess it's always important to get a score directly after a goal like that to put your team in front. It was an absolute monster as well, Paul. It's no harm kicking a fifty-yard screamer just after a goal has equalised things. Yeah, uh, I suppose if it, if it didn't go over, I would have I would have heard about it from a few players, but um. I know I had a couple of shots early in the first half. I probably should have done a small bit better with them. So it was nice to, it was nice to chip one or two over. And I think the momentum kind of turned and turned in our favour after Tom's goal. When you're talking about the sort of atmosphere around things, and certainly from outside the camp, there have been there has been a lot made of all these players who have opted not to join up with the panel. I'm just wondering when when that was as that kind of developed. Have you were you thinking at all along the lines of? Were you wondering what's going on here? If you're if you're involved in the panel and have been for a long time, do you start losing confidence at all or losing any sort of belief if you hear of and see other guys deciding not to come in? Uh, yeah, well, I suppose it is something that you don't, you know, you don't, you wouldn't really um, enjoy hearing if, if someone doesn't want to join the panel. But I mean, you know, win, lose, or draw, it's, it's a great honour playing for, for for whatever county you're in. And I suppose um, maybe the last couple of years when things haven't been going as well, maybe it's easier just to kind of. Maybe you know go away and maybe reject the chance of coming in, but I think uh, you know overall in Galway, I think that win will will give us a massive a massive lift and it was it was badly needed. I take it you weren't tempted at all then to yourself maybe to take a year away or anything like that, which a lot of players are doing these days for various counties. Yeah, uh, no, it hasn't uh, <laughs> it hasn't um, it hasn't come into my to my head yet. Anyway, I don't I don't know what will happen in the future, but uh, no, I look, I'm delighted to be playing for Galway even. You know, we had some tough years there, and you know, we still haven't. We've nothing. We've nothing won yet, but I mean, it's it's a massive privilege going out there representing your county, you know, week in week out, and uh, it's something that um, it's something that I, you know, that I I appreciate and and I um and I enjoy. Listen, Paul Conroy, best of luck, and thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, cheers. Thanks a minute. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. Yeah, it's a funny one. It must have been, must have been a little bit weird for the players like Paul who remained there. You, you, you start, uh, certainly I would start to think what's, what's, why is nobody feeling the urge to play with this squad There's, there, sh- there should be talent here there should be a chance to win you wrote a piece about this Murph in advance of the game in, yeah. your, in your Irish Times column uh, I think it was 52 players was the amount of uh, men and players who Kevin Walsh calculates has he's asked to the panel and have uh, you know uh, no, not that he's going to be necessarily getting well you couldn't get all those people involved but the, he wanted to have a look at all these people all these players and they had other things that they wanted to do. You also suggested that maybe so you could put a pretty good panel of those players together to take on the current team, and the result might be in doubt. Yeah, I mean, uh, and a couple of people uh, asked me to name that team uh, on Twitter. Uh, I mean, what you're looking at is Michal Lundy, John, uh, Johnny Duan, and Fintan O'Curreen. Michal Lundy is a guy who was mal match in all Ireland club final, whatever it was, 18 months ago. Uh, for Curra Finn against Loch Neal. Fintan O'Curreen is a captain, former uh, Iron winning captain under 21 level. Johnny Dwan's been our best defender for the last three or four years. Three of those guys are in New York. Uh, Ian Burke is like a one under 21 player of the year award uh, a number of years ago when Gola won the Iron. That was 2013. Cahal Ryan was arguably Gola's best player in that Iron final. I mean, there's there are loads of guys with 
huge pedigree. You know, like that's that's real pedigree, whether that's minor level, under twenty one level, Sigerson. Those guys have have done it at every stepping stone up to senior level. So you would expect that those guys are anxious to then prove themselves at senior level. Now, me and you were stood in Randall's Island in New York talking to Johnny Glenn whenever it was, two months ago, not mm-hmm. even two months ago. And when we were there, we said, we can see why this guy is over here. He's behaving like a normal human being. <laughs> and sure, those three guys are in New York, Lundy, Duane and O'Currine. On an individual basis, what can you say to these guys? The, we all agree that we make these demands on intercounty players. We all agree that they're unreasonable demands. Um, so for a guy, to, for one guy to to opt out, it's perfectly reasonable. We we can all understand that. For that amount of people to opt out, say fifty two is the number that that came out courtesy of Ke- uh, Kevin Welch in an uh, article by John Fallon in the Irish Independent. I mean, all you can do is look at that. I mean, I, I you know obviously a few people were getting on to me on Saturday night in the aftermath of the article that I'd written on Thursday. Uh, you know, and but I mean, it, it's only, all you can do is say 52 people have decided not to play for this squad. All if, uh, From the outside, all you can say is that's not a very good message to send out. Whether that's uh, a manager being incapable of convincing them or a pessimism that's deep-rooted in a county, that it's not, you know, one guy alone doesn't make that decision. He talks to his friends or he talks to his family. And if he can't find one person who thinks sticking around to play for Galway is a good idea, then that's obviously going to have a massive impact on a guy. So that's 52 sets of families, 52 sets of friends that are telling people, don't bother. You know, what's the point? Mayor are going to beat you in Castle Barron. That's it. And... So, I mean, I, I, I suggested there was apathy across the county, and I think that's absolutely fair enough. I mean, that's the rea- that was the reality of the situation on Thursday morning. And on Saturday morning, I felt the exact same way, and on Saturday evening, I felt exactly the same way. And then Gola came out and produced a performance like that. And it's, it was a managerial masterclass as well in giving five debutantes uh, uh, their head, and all five of them, not just not just kind of minding their own corner, but but playing really brilliantly among the the five best players on the field, and you have to say that's it was it was an extraordinary evening to be a goaler person, and and for those players, I mean, obviously we've been talking about the celebrations and all that, the release that that gives, because you have been told by fifty two of your peers that you're kind of what, what are you up to here? Lads? What are you doing? Like, on, let's all go to New York. Yeah, that you know, life is short. Yeah. You know, life is short to get beaten by Mayo for ten summers in a row, and I. So you have to say that those guys that stuck around. I mean, it's more than just we beat Mayo. There's also a case of we've made well, the right call here. We've made we, the right we, call. We, we've committed what our we've done, winter to train training for this, and we've pulled it off. So exactly, yeah. and I think that that's that's a that, that's a pretty sweet feeling for those guys over and above just Mayo. An uplifting way to leave it, Murph. I think my hope is now returning for the game against Italy on We're Wednesday. Win so much. We are going to win so much. We're going to be tired of winning by yeah. the time we beat Italy. I don't we're going to beat them and beat them again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one last push for the Irish team. I think from we need. I think we need something from. Maybe our second captaineers around the world. I don't know. Uh, some honorary, some Euros, P. Bezos. I just there. feel it's a long time since we got a P. Bezos on. Uh, and I know that a lot of you are watching wearing second captain's t shirts around the world. And at the Euros, I met a couple at the, at the weekend. Uh, Mark Horgan counted five in Paris for the first game. Uh, and I'm sure they all came up and said hello. So uh, email those photographs, everyone, to secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. 
I will collate and reproduce your finest, finest efforts over the course of the week. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Simon. Simon's moved back over to his mixing desk over there, but he's given us a thumbs up, so it's all good. Uh, thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you oh, tomorrow. We're obviously going to keep piling out the podcast, so we'll have a post-England, Slovakia, Wales, Russia uh, chat, and I'm sure we'll be looking ahead more to Ireland against Italy on Wednesday. Take care. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.